when we were in Las Vegas, no, we weren't gambling, I was pastoring a church there, but when we were in Las Vegas, we backed into a thriving prison ministry. Dr. Dean Haywood was a retired Episcopal minister who had a, a marvelous evangelistic and discipleship ministry in multiple nearby state and federal prisons. He started worshiping with us and eventually came on staff, moved his credentials into the PCA. He was a a Calvinist and an evangelical of the highest order, and he preached repentance and faith in Christ alone. He was deeply respected by all the prison wardens where he ministered because the recidivism rate among his men was very low. There were genuine conversions and transformations. And as his men were released, they would come to our church and begin to worship. One of them, named Will Nelson, who I insisted upon calling Willie Nelson, even served as a deacon. Dean called me up one day and said, Carl, can I take you to lunch? Dean always wanted to go to the all-you-can-eat buffets in Vegas. And uh, as we sit down, he said, Carl, we have a problem. I have men who are coming out of our prison ministry who are being released, who have repented. They've borne fruit in keeping with repentance. They confess saving faith in Christ. God has accepted them, but many of the people in our congregation can't, won't have anything to do with them. For the last few weeks, we've been slowly unpacking one snapshot of an encounter between our Lord Jesus Christ, some really low-life sinners, and some highbrow Pharisees. Today we're going to get to the punchline, the point, and if you've always loved the parable of the prodigal son, I would ask you love the real point. The real point, I hope you have your Bible open to Luke 15, is the section from verses 25 through 32. This is really the the reason why the Lord Jesus told the parable. Let's seek the Lord's help now at this time. Our Father, this word that you have given us is living and powerful and cuts to our very heart. This word exposes our self-righteousness and joylessness and jealousy. Pour out the Holy Spirit upon us now and use this word to show us our desperate need of grace and the forgiveness of sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 15. You'll certainly need it as we will analyze in some depth this text. As our chapter opens in Luke 15 verses 1 and 2, we find the Lord Jesus doing something he always did. He is attracting notorious sinners, tax collectors, drunks, and prostitutes, those who live at the fringe of Jewish society. They're coming to him. They're hearing his word, and upon hearing it, they're repenting and believing in him. And then Jesus does something profound. He actually shares a meal with them. He shows fellowship and friendship to them. And the Pharisees who are standing by watching, who've been dogging the steps of Jesus for three years now, are angered. They're bothered by the fact that Jesus would receive these people, but especially that he would actually sit down and share a meal with them. And you'll notice what we're told they did about it. We're told at the beginning of chapter 15 that the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And in response, Jesus gives a three-point sermon. Look very carefully at these. We've already looked at at point one and two. That is, you can find it in verse three and ten, three through ten, where you have Jesus 
warming up his audience. He's stressing heaven's joys over God's seeking and finding lost things. And so he tells the saga of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then the third point, which is the longest part, is our parable that we'll be looking at today, really just the second part of it. The most famous of all our Lord's parables and with good reason. Verse 11 and 24 that we looked at last week are all about the prodigal, the younger son who cashes in his inheritance. And he goes to a far country and he wastes all his wealth on fleshly pursuits. He engages in every vice known to man and doesn't even think about the father. Then disaster strikes. At the same time he runs out of money, a famine strikes the far country. He sinks so low he begins to work for a Gentile pig farmer. He's so poor that he's racked with hunger pains. He finally comes to his senses, purposes to go home, and he heads in that direction. As he walks back into his town, he's spotted by his father, who's looking for him on the horizon. The father runs to him. And as the younger son begins his speech that he had been rehearsing all the way home, his speech of repentance, he no longer gets the first phrase out of his mouth, and his expectant father stops him and calls for all the trappings of honor to be brought for him. A jeweled, elegant robe, a ring, sandals. Only sons wore these, by the way, not slaves. And the pinnacle of the father's joy is the feast, the celebration. He kills a calf saved for just such an occasion. It would feed 200 people. And so the party is on. It begins because when prodigals come home to the father's house, there is only one proper response. Celebrate and dance the night away. But the real focus, the point that the Pharisees were meant to hear, was the discussion of the older brother. Look carefully at verse 3 in Luke 15, where we are told Jesus spoke this parable to them. That is, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so we have to look and say, who's being described here the clearest? And so Jesus winds his way through lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, until we come to them in the story. Verses 25 and following, the older brothers. Now the older son, the end of the chapter in verses 25 through 32, is the brother who did everything right. He stayed home. He did everything he was supposed to do. When we meet him, look at verse 25. He's coming in from the field where he's been working. Now the Pharisees, when they heard the scene shift to the older brother in verse 25, they would have said, here we go. That's our boy. And as the older brother approaches, as he approaches the house, he appears what sounds to his ears like a party. So he grabs a servant who's hanging around and he asks him what's happening. And the servant tells him three important details. You'll see them there in verse 27. The details are, your brother's home. Second, he's safe and sound. Third, dad has killed the fatted calf and the party is on. Now, a, a dutiful older brother would be at home welcoming the guests. As the eldest son, he was supposed to be the maitre d'. Now, one question has to be asked is this. Why didn't the father send someone for him as soon as the younger brother showed up? It's an easy answer. Because the father knows that the older brother has no interest in the younger brother. Look where he is in verse 25. He's out in the field. That's a metaphor for where he is in relationship to the family. He has no love for his younger brother. 
He doesn't rejoice in his coming back any more than he cared when his younger brother left. Now, as the older brother approaches the house now, you can pick up on his attitude. He's stunned and suspicious. Mostly he's suspicious because legalists are always suspicious, particularly of joyful people. I want to analyze what his problems are because my sense is there will be some of you who say, Wow, Carl, it's like I'm looking in a mirror as I hear you. Look at his problems carefully in verses 25 through 32. A half a dozen of them that the text points out. The first is he's angry. Look at verse 28. and We're just simply told that. The older brother is actually more than annoyed. The Greek word here in verse 28 is orgiste. It refers to a blind rage. He's raging because he wants his younger brother to pay for his folly. So he refuses to go in and share in the party. He will not go into the feast. And here Jesus is addressing the Pharisees' original issue, that he was eating and feasting with repentant sinners. For a legalist, that's outrageous behavior. And so notice the first thing about older brothers. They're angry. Second, he's jealous. Look what he says in verse 29. He says to his father, you never gave me a young goat. He thinks the father is unfair and unjust and that he has gotten a raw deal. He's jealous of his younger brother. Third problem. He doesn't understand his position in verse 29. He sees himself as a servant. Look what he says in verse 29. Lo, these many years I've been serving you. And he uses the word deleo, which means that he's like a house slave. He doesn't see himself as a beloved son. He sees himself as unrewarded. And this is how it always is with self-righteous Pharisees. They, see the, they view the service of God as a sacrifice, as a burden, as a drudgery. They want recognition and reward. They want to pay off. Instead of understanding the service rightly understood is a privilege. I've noticed among many mature believers here at Woodruff Road that there is a, there's a steady tendency to depreciate their own service or sacrifice or giving. Ask them what they've given up, and they'll say, nothing. They're ready to serve, to contribute all out of thanksgiving for grace received. They view their burden as light and Christ's yoke to be easy. Not the older brother. He sees himself as an unrewarded slave. A fourth problem he has is he doesn't understand his brother. In fact, he won't even claim him as a brother. Look at verse 30. He contemptuously refers to him as this son of yours to his father. And the father reminds him, notice in verse 32, your brother was dead and is alive again. He doesn't even understand the relationship to repenting sinners. And then another problem he has is he doesn't understand his father. He sees his father as a harsh taskmaster. He didn't understand his father's business. He thought that the father was about lands and flocks and estates and buildings and herds when the father is really in the business of finding lost children. The older brother had worked with him all these years and had never figured it out. And then his sixth problem. He doesn't understand his own disobedience and need for forgiveness. 
His recitation of his own service and records show what high regard he had for his own obedience. In his opinion, the older brother thought he had done everything right. In fact, listen to his own words. Look at verse 29. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. He couldn't have joined in our confession of sin. He'd say, nope, not for me. He did not see that he had disobeyed his father or done anything that required repentance. He felt self-justified. He sounds just like the Apostle Paul describing himself before conversion in Philippians 3 when Paul says, Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. He sounds just like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, who upon hearing the commandments replied, All these things I've kept from my youth up, what do I lack? The elder brother doesn't see himself in need of a changed heart, of regeneration, or anyone else's righteousness to be imputed to him. His relationship with the Father was all performance-based. He wanted credit where credit was due, and he wanted, look at verse 29, and he wanted his goat. He wanted the fatted calf to be killed for him. To quote Mark Twain, he was a good man in the worst kind of way. He would have disagreed vehemently with John Bunyan, who when asked him about himself, Mr. Bunyan, were you justified by your own righteousness? He answered, there is enough evil in my best acts to damn all of England. Do you see how lost the elder brother was? And how faulty his self-perception was? He sees himself as righteous and always been that way and worthy of honor. Unlike the younger son who sees himself as a sinner and deserving nothing only pleading for mercy. It's not the older son's badness that's keeping him out of the feast, but his goodness. In the end, the older brother is lost because he sees himself as too righteous to join in. He stands outside the feast, stands outside the house. He won't even come in because he said, I'm not going in there where those type of people are. How does the father respond to such an outburst of anger and hardness and self-righteousness. Look at his response in verse 31 and 32. First of all, we notice that the father comes out seeking. See that in verse 28? Since the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in, the father came out and pleaded with him. Here we see God the seeker, God the initiator. Here we see the father leaving a party and coming out to entreat a hypocrite. And what we find is the same shock when the younger son demanded his inheritance. Now the father is shocked again. His older son won't even come to the party. It would have been right for the father to slap him across the face for his impertinence and disrespect. And now the father would be right to do the same thing to his elder son for his disrespect. But that's not what the father does. He comes out and explains and entreats. He reasons. Look at verse 28. He pleads. He shows up in mercy. Here we see the patience of God who suffers long with sinners. And then a second response of the father. Notice what he does in terms of reminding the son of his standing in verse 31. He says, son, all I have is yours. Now I want you to think about the actual legal and financial implications when he says in verse 31, Son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. This is because the younger son, you remember from last week, had forced a distribution of the property before the father died. So the elder brother is in possession of 
all the rest of the inheritance. So when the father says, son, all I have is yours, he's, he's stating a legal and financial truth. What more could any son want? The older brother had it all every day, the robe, the ring, the sandals, the calf. But more than that, he has had access to the blessing of access to a gracious father every day. Look at verse 31, when the father says, son, you're always with me. He's had the blessing of being right next to the father in the father's house all the time while the son's been off in folly and stupidity. And then the father defends something. Look at verse 32. And Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees here. He defends the necessity in verse 32 of celebrating the found son. He says, it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. When the spiritually dead are found, it's always right to celebrate and throw a party. The Greek term implies, and Jesus said it was right, that it was a moral necessity. You have to do this. When lost sons come home and they repent, you've got to. You're under an imperative to throw a party. Why? Because this, repentance and conversion, is what causes joy to God and the holy angels. This is heaven's joy. It can't be subdued or toned down. Do you see what the father's doing? Just as he received the younger son with kindness and mercy and forgiveness and a welcome, he's offering the same to the elder brother. He's saying, you can come into the party, which is a symbol of the heavenly feast. He's inviting him to salvation. And then I want you to notice the oddest aspect from a literary standpoint of this entire parable. Look at verse 32 and notice how it ends. The story ends. Do you find that strange? What questions does this raise for you? You're thinking, if you passed eighth grade English, which I barely did, you're thinking, this is not an ending. What happened? What did the older brother do? You can't have a story with no ending. You learned that in middle school. It's like a joke without a punchline. You're left hanging. I would love to write the ending. How does this sound? And the older son fell on his knees before his father and said, Father, I repent for my cold, loveless service and my pride and anger and selfishness. Forgive me, Father. It would be my delight to come to the feast and sit with my brother. At this point, the father embraced and kissed him, took him in, and sat between his sons, and everyone rejoiced in the sons who had been reconciled to such a gracious father. But I don't get to write the ending. The listening Pharisees wrote the ending. Here's what they wrote. And the older brother, being outraged, picked up a piece of wood and beat him to death in front of everyone. That's the ending they wrote. That's the cross. And that's what they would do just a few months after this. And by the way, they congratulated themselves on the way to their execution of Jesus, how that preserved the honor of Israel and Judaism. How do we apply this word? Let me make several applications of this text to us, especially verses 25 to 32. The first thing, in case anybody here is still left wondering, the older brother was lost. If the banquet symbolizes the messianic feast, the feast of the redeemed, if the banquet symbolizes the kingdom of God and everlasting life, he would not go in. 
I'm reminded what Jesus said to the Pharisees earlier in Matthew 23 when he said, Woe to you Pharisees and scribes, you're hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven to men and will not enter in yourselves. We need to be absolutely clear on this point. Elder brothers, Pharisees, are lost. Having never seen themselves as reprobates in desperate need of the grace, the forgiveness of God. Pharisees and elder brothers, by the way, you can always spot them for this. They hate the idea of repentance. They hate it. Won't do it. Hate the idea of an imputed righteousness. And so they never call out to God and say, take my filthy rags and give me the perfect earned righteousness of Jesus. A second application. Let me ask you a question. What causes you to rejoice? Is it when you get a raise or a good report from your doctor or your team wins the game? Or do you rejoice when someone falls and you can exult in your moral superiority? Or do you rejoice at the same thing that the angels and the Savior rejoiced in? Or are you grumbling and turning up your nose when God sovereignly and graciously works to save the most unlikely people? As heaven rejoices, so must the church rejoice and be glad when the spiritually dead are brought to life and the lost are found. If we ever grow weary of rejoicing over conversions, God have mercy upon us. We've not read this triad of parables correctly if we don't see rejoicing at the center of them. Many of you have have sat through our our short course on biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, or you've gone through that with, with someone else. And one of the first things you learn is what are the repeated concepts in this text? Well, look with me. Just Let your eyes glance down through chapter 15. In verse 6, we see this phrase, rejoice with me. In verse 7, more joy in heaven. In verse 9, rejoice with me. In verse 10, there's joy in the presence of God. Verse 23, bring the fatted calf, let us be merry. Verse 24, they began to be merry. Verse 24, there was music and dancing. Verse 32, they began to be merry and glad. This is, despite the elder brother's best efforts, Perhaps the most joyful chapter in all of Scripture. And so I would ask you, when was the last time when you heard of of a conversion that you rejoiced? This last Wednesday night, we had the privilege in the prayer meeting of seeing a a video message from Jay and Sumster Brantley, our our missionaries in uh, northern Kenya, one of the most God-forsaken, isolated places in the world. Jay and Sumster went there. It's an area about as big as the state of California. It's a desert. It's under a horrendous drought. And they begin to tell the gospel story. And I was just about to jump out of my skin when Jay said, and we're seeing people come to saving faith. I thought, we should just stop that video right now and rejoice. Your, your, your generous gifts, offerings and tithes, have, they have succeeded. The Lord has used them for the conversion of many far away. People who can't even read, they they just come to saving faith by hearing. We're seeing conversions. That should always cause us to rejoice. Another application. If you're right now saying, Carl, I, I don't get it. I think the older brother's in the right here. Let me tell you a profound and important biblical baseline truth. Legalists don't understand grace. In fact... They hate grace. 
They don't understand unmerited favor or free forgiveness. They don't understand the removal of punishment by placing it on a substitute. They can't grasp somebody else needing to bear their shame and take their scorn. They do not understand free favor from God. Another application. Even more, legalists are always hypocrites. They hang around the house of the Lord. They're moral and religious. They focus on externals and they do what is expected, but they don't understand God's heart for sinners. They have no interest in evangelism and missions. They certainly don't understand what makes all of heaven sing. They're joyless. They won't come to the party. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. And so they're constantly trying to keep up appearances and prop up the illusion that they're not desperately bankrupt sinners whose self-righteousness is a pile of dung. They don't like confessing sin. And if they do it, it's through clenched teeth. Final application. Elder brothers are lethal in a congregation. Oh, this one was hardworking, respectable, dependable, thrifty. But there was no rejoicing in his life. No music, no dancing, no celebration. Can you imagine what would have happened if he'd encountered his brother first before dad did? Oh, so you've come back home. Things didn't work out so well out there for you, did they? Too bad you aren't welcome here anymore. You broke dad's heart and disgraced us all. Just keep moving. Go back to the far country and don't upset dad anymore. A friend of mine who's a godly PCA pastor and a a fine preacher of God's sovereign grace couldn't figure out for a while when he first came to the church why they had so many visitors who walked in their doors once but never returned. And so he began to hang out in the lobby, meeting and talking to visitors. And after two or three weeks, he heard a conversation between the man who always insisted on being the greeter at the front door and a visitor. And the greeter said to the visitor, Well, we would prefer that you have a tie on when you come here. You're underdressed. Then to the next family, the same greeter said, "Uh, Where do your kids go to school? And upon being told where, he said, Well, we would really urge you to stop that and homeschool your kids. The pastor quickly realized why folks weren't returning. His greeter was an elder brother. Elder brothers want a nice church, a respectable church with their kind of people who follow their rules. And I will add, not only are elder brothers lethal, they're the most spiritually unattractive people in the scriptures and in the church. And I will tell you, I've had elder brothers in every congregation I've pastored. My believing friends, at times you and I are prone to slide into the shoes of the elder brother. It's so easy to forget who we were, what we were before we came to the Father. As time passes, we begin to to have a forgetful heart. And we begin to imagine that we were really good people. Because we've avoided sins of passion and all the while sins of attitude and speech are running rampant within us. We don't regard our pride or our harshness or our jealousy or our worry or our anger as sins. We call them quirks, shortcomings. I would plead with you to carefully look in the mirror of this text. Do you see your face? 
Repent. Come back to that humility you had as a returning prodigal. Oh, people of God, what a terrible position to find ourselves in. When someone has been convicted of their sin, called it sin, repented of that sin, radically returned to God, and then hear from the church. Well, that's no brother of mine. May God help you and I to have hearts like the Father's, a heart that joyfully welcomes repenting prodigals into the house. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that we would learn the lesson that Jesus had for Pharisees on this day. That what makes you and the angels in heaven rejoice would cause us to rejoice. That we would be delighted whenever we hear of your converting grace, of you giving the spirit of repentance to men, no matter what their social or legal status. Lord, keep us away from all legalism, all self-superiority, all self-righteousness. Keep us far away from the heart of an elder brother. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Trinity Psalter hymnal now and turn to Psalm 1B as we stand and sing Psalm 1B for our closing psalm.